From the Canon Institute, this is the Russia file. I am Maxim Trudalyubov. We are going to discuss Belarus, a country in Eastern Europe, bordered by Russia to the east, Ukraine to the south, by Poland, Lithuania and Latvia to the west. Belarusian long-time authoritarian ruler Alexander Lukashenko has been in denial over the coronavirus, and the country's civil society has come to the rescue, has thrown a lifeline to the Belarusian healthcare system. The country's social context is thus changing, and its politics is getting more interesting too. Against the background of a national awakening in Belarus, Lukashenko, once Europe's preeminent pro-Moscow politician, is no longer comfortable being seen as pro-Russian. Joining me to discuss all this is Franek Vichorka, a Minsk-based journalist. He's vice president at Digital Communication Network. Mr. Vecherka has been active in the country's civil society and is a frequent speaker for democracy and individual freedoms in Belarus. The COVID-19 pandemic has provided us with a lens through which to see the world's governments and societies. There are different approaches, obviously. There is that of China that is authoritarian and we cannot really trust the data, but we see that it's at least serious about the issue itself. We see countries like Germany, other Europeans, who are more open and we probably can trust more, but there are less restrictions. And then there is Belarus, which is somewhat of an outlier and um, some sort of a third way. Where is it on the pandemic map? President Lukashenko, he adopted the COVID dissident as the main strategy of his policy. So on one hand, he used the situation in order to show his uniqueness and also to show the F gesture to the West. He mentioned many times, you know, that all this pandemic is a hoax, it's a fake, and Italy, France, Germany, they're so bad in countering because they're not prepared. But we are much better, we know how it works, because we, we met so many pandemics before. And on the other hand, he put the situation on hold because he wants kind of uh, stability to be preserved before presidential election happens. It's only three months before presidential elections and any kind of panic caused by COVID can impact his popularity and the situation in the country. Where does Belarus society stand is there a support? How does Lukashenko's power base reacting to his approach to the pandemic? In the beginning, people were afraid of leaving homes. And when Lukashenko and uh, authorities said that we are not going to introduce quarantine, there was a kind of uh, protest moods in the society. But now many people are tired, even those from private sectors, from IT, tired of staying home and they are going outside and Lukashenko say, look, you see, this is what I was mentioning. You don't need to be afraid and you shouldn't stay home. But what's important, that's the reaction of the active part of civil society. Our activists, private businessmen, even officials united to help medics. There is a huge nationwide campaign of fundraising to buy masks, equipment for hospitals that needed there. And I never saw it before in such scale. And I think this support from the society 
money gathered through internet platforms, they are much bigger than money given by the government in order to help these hospitals. Even my cousin, he was just released from the hospital with COVID. He said that all the equipment, he asked the doctors, and all the um, equipment, you know, all these gadgets, you know, the masks, protection gears, everything was given by volunteers. And the same volunteers were providing political prisoners in 2010 with food, with documentation, with legal support. So that's really cool. Yeah, that's fascinating. So basically, the civil society has switched probably temporarily from politics to supporting the doctors amid this situation. Is that right? Absolutely. I'm proud of my peers and of activists and of journalists, you know, who turn to be activists because for them it doesn't matter what Lukashenko is saying. For them, the most important thing is to help people. And I think Lukashenko did a great job to unite people against him with his own statements, with his own attitude to the situation. And I think actually about presidential elections, so many candidates that are running against Lukashenko, that's also a result of such protesting moods in the society. That's very interesting. But the government is not preventing the volunteers from helping the doctors, right? In the beginning, there was kind of negativity. They were saying that all these campaigns, they use, you know, these portals, which take 10% commission from each transaction. They are gaining money on these. They have private interests. They are stealing. Nobody needs these masks. These masks they are bringing to hospitals, they are useless. They've been trying to undermine trust to the movement. Exactly. To undermine trust and also to make doctors and medics do not work with volunteers. But now there is a telegram channel and each doctor, each hospital knows where to ask, where to write requests for special equipment or for special staff from volunteers. And it works besides authorities. Authorities may not know what's happening you know, behind the scene. This is really good. I think even many people in the Ministry of Health, they don't support Lukashenko in his statements. And they do really a lot to prevent the infection. So on the one hand, there is Lukashenko with his crazy weird statements about like vodka, goats and everything. On the other hand, There are officials, there are medics, there is a group of people in the government who are trying to speak out and say that still masks needed, still stay home if possible, still keep distance if you can. And this is good. This is good. Yeah, that's very interesting. So basically, we have these two realities with the president and his public persona and his denial, right? Essentially, he is in a denial, right? And uh, he makes those statements. And then there is a parallel reality with the government institutions and society. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Two reality, two hands. So officially we have this propaganda picture. Inofficially we have really many people, both in civil society and in the government, working against the pandemic. Okay, so there's this presidential election this year. There are probably two questions here, which is, well, ironic coming from a Russian. Well, one question is, what does an election even mean in Belarus? Because, I mean, obviously in Russia, elections are also a questionable proposition. So this is question one, what does it mean? And second... To what extent Lukashenko's approach to the pandemic has been influenced by the prospect of an election this year? So elections in Belarus are not democratic. Since 1994, I suppose it was the last time we really had a chance to elect the president. 
I think they became kind of ritual as it was in Soviet Union. So people know elections are happening in each five year. They know there is a kind of competition there. There is an activation of political life, but nobody believes that elections can change the situation. But in fact, these elections are a bit different because of COVID primarily. And many people came to participate, are running, not just from the traditional opposition, but from so-called elites. And I think the persons like Valery Tsepkala, who is a creator of high-tech park in Belarus, or another one, Babarika Viktor, who was a um, chairman of Belgazprom Bank for 20 years, such persons would never appear before at presidential elections because participation elections would mean end of career in Belarus for you forever or perhaps imprisonment. And now many people are so angry. I think even the representatives of this nomenclatura or elites, they decided to try. So I still don't know if these candidates are spoilers or just the team players of Lukashenko in order to create, you know, this fake feeling of competition. But even their appearance at the political level in this political space, it creates a lot of interest within the society. So I'm very excited to see what will happen next. So it's obvious that Lukashenko will be the candidate and then he will probably allow somebody to run along himself. Is that right? But society's reaction will kind of play the interesting thing would be how Belarus society is reacting. So Lukashenko, on one hand, he wants to not be alone at the elections, so to have this alternative in order to have Russia and the West to recognize the elections. But on the other hand, he doesn't want the strong candidates against him because strong candidates, they can inspire nationwide movement, they can ask people to go to the streets, to protest. So any strong candidate against Lukashenko weakens him. This is why even on this stage, Lukashenko's media, propaganda channels attacked Viktor Bavarika, who is this banker from Gazprobank. He also tried to put, you know, this anchor of pro-Russian candidate. So Lukashenko already and his media accused Bavarika in being pro-Russian. And this is interesting case. Lukashenko never before was using this officially. And now, now he needs someone to be pro-Russian because it helps him to play with the nationalist and pro-Western electorate. On Russia, what is President Lukashenko's game vis-a-vis Russia right now? I mean, we know the polls, right? The figures that the integration process is not popular in general, right? It's not something that Belarus society and Russian society actually support. So there is some other thing, right? Something else is going on. So what's going on vis-a-vis Russia right now? There are several tracks. One, these are uh, negotiation on prices, which started in winter. They had agreement on gas and oil. And it's still ongoing because every year we will be back you know, to the same discussion. And it's always negotiating the better price for Lukashenko. Lukashenko is dependent on Russian oil and gas and he wants to keep this price so low as possible. This is one track. Other track, it's Russian influence in Belarus. There are always forces present in Belarus. Rosso 
like a different Russian. So this Russian, Russian agency is responsible for relationships with other societies. Exactly, different agencies, but now Telegram channels. So they created a massive network of Telegram channels attacking Lukashenko every day. And uh, Lukashenko cannot do anything about this because before what he did, he was coming to the apartment, arrested, you know, the bad guy he doesn't like and expelled him or her to Russia. So it happened to Sputnik and Pogrom activists, you know, a few years ago. Now he doesn't know who is behind Telegram channel. That was a Russian nationalist group, was it? I mean, yes. Kind yes, of a, a nationalist media outlet. Exactly, Russian nationalist outlet, and they were against Lukashenko, they were against Belarus opposition, they saw Belarus as the part of Russia. But now there are many of these groups, and nobody knows who is behind them. And they attack opposition, they attack Lukashenko, and uh, they are multiple, you know, and we don't know who is behind, Belarusians or Russians. So he feels very vulnerable, very sensitive. Society is exposed to this pro-Russian propaganda and disinformation, and uh, nobody can do anything about this because independent media are destroyed by Lukashenko. He did all possible, you know, to make them very weak, very limited, without opportunities to be sustainable. State media are not popular. They are watched only by babushkas and by like older population, Soviet nostalgic, first of all. So what's he afraid of now? That Russia will create its own fifth column in Belarus and will repeat kind of Crimea-Donbass scenario. And he's using this Russian agent's myth or narrative in his political statements. Given this Russia's influence, Russia obviously is running all those information or let's say disinformation campaigns all over the world, as we know. But Belarus obviously is special, it's very close, and there's a long history of relationship, obviously. So what is Belarusian society's view of Russian influence? Belarusians do not view themselves as Russians or brothers of Russians anymore. There is still like mental, cultural connection because of the language primarily. But for young people, the West is much, much more close. If we see the polls, only from 3 to 4.5% of Belarusians would be ready to support the inclusion of Belarus to Russia, the incorporation of Belarus to Russia. And more or less half of Belarusians support the idea of just the union and friendship thing, which is almost the same number as those standing for Belarus-EU union and partnership. So I think, you know, these numbers are changing, but there is no strong pro-Russian force here. There is no pro-Russian party. There is no chance for it to be here because of primarily, you know, Lukashenko's vertical and uh, this westernization of the society for less than years. Lesser and lesser ethnic Russians here. So when like 15 years ago, it was about 10% of Russian. Now it's about like 5-6% of people in Belarus are ethnic Russians. Even children of ethnic Russians in Belarus, you know, they perceive themselves as Belarusians. So this Belarusian-ness, Belarusian national identity is getting stronger after situation in Ukraine. Maidan revolution in Ukraine catalyzed the process of nation building here. So if Putin, for example, will do the same scenario as in Crimea or Donbass, I'm sure he will face a lot of resistance. And this is actually perhaps the best protection from potential annexations or green men, Zelone Chalavechki, coming here. You know, the strong national identity. Lukashenko also understands this. This is why he doesn't 
counter this Belarusian language classes, doesn't counter Vushvanka, you know, people wearing shirts with national elements. There are more and more events about Belarusian culture and history, which was not uh, possible 15-20 years ago. So there is evolution of the regime and the huge development of the society in terms of national identity building. Okay, so those are all grassroots movements. The learning of the language, some visible display of Belarus culture, like clothes, right? Does the government do anything in that respect? You said he's not preventing it, any of this from developing, but uh, is there, let's say, a public position of the government on this, on the cultural movement, on nation-building movement? I think they don't do much about that. They just don't prohibit. And uh, this is why, first of all, civil society initiate more and more projects on Belarusian culture. Businessman Viktor Babarika, who is one of potential candidates for presidential elections, he created a lot of public spaces in Minsk for Belarusian artists, for Belarusian musicians. He organized these platforms for crowdfunding, which helped NGOs to survive and to function without foreign grants and huge international companies. I don't know who made more for Belarusian identity and society than Samsung or A1, telecommunication from Austria. You know, they do their advertising campaign in Belarusian language. They dub movies, Hollywood movies in Belarusian language. They pay Belarusian musicians, artists, actors, billboards in Belarusian. They make campaign to promote Belarusian language. So they create, you know, this demand within the society for Belarusian culture. So it became fancy, it became popular, it became trendy. So now Belarusian language is not more the village language, it's more like elite. It's kind of cool. Belarus is a primarily a Russian-speaking country, is that right? You know, Belarus was the most Russified country in the Soviet Union. So that was the goal of Stalin primarily. So we had like 95% of people of schools in Belarusian language in the beginning of Soviet Union in 20th. And we end up uh, the Soviet period with only 5 or 7% of schools in Belarusian language. So we totally, you know, destroyed any identity and it was very close to Russia. So when Lukashenko came, you know, he used this moment of this weak identity and say that I'm coming to be the president and I will build the alliance with Russia. I will bring us back to our union with our brother. And it worked in 90th. But it doesn't work anymore because for these 30 years of independence after Soviet Union collapsed, the new generation raised. They saw Ukraine, they saw Georgia, they are traveling to Lithuania and Poland. Nobody speaks Russian there and they don't want to be part of Russia anymore. And Lukashenko also realized it. This is why he changed his rhetorics towards identity. And last 10 years, that's the biggest progress. A lot of books published in Belarusian language a lot of musicians, even popular YouTube bloggers with million subscribers, you know, they record uh, Belarusian stuff. Even Russian stars like Yuri Duts and uh, others, you know, they do some gestures in support of Belarus. They try to speak Belarusian, you know, so much as they can. So it's very cool and very interesting process. Now, all these small markers, elements, they shape the political reality. So Lukashenko is not in the same situation as it was 10 and 15 years ago, before presidential elections back then. 
Now he is surrounded by a lot of initiatives and quite a strong civil society based on these pro-independence values. And on the other hand, he is countering this Russian influence. He was always supported by Russia. Lukashenko was always the bigger pro-Russian candidate in Belarus, and not anymore. All his babushkas voting for him before now turned to Putin. Lukashenko was always like alpha man, you know, for them, and now Putin is this guy. So Lukashenko realized this change, and he's trying to play with nationalist part of the electorate. Yeah, I was going to ask about Putin in particular. So is he still popular in Belarus? He's extremely popular, I must say. First of all, because of the social networks, because of Telegram, because of Viber, because of Adnaklasniki and Vkontakte, all the users of social networks, they are exposed to Russian media. They watch Russian content, TV shows, Salavyov, Kisilov massively. They don't watch Belarusian show, you know. In their minds, this mass electorate, you know, Putin is the superhero who returned Crimea. So I don't speak their majority of people like this. But the exposure to this information is drastic. And uh, we can't do anything about this. So even the owner of my apartment, which I rent, you know, she's a Belarusian woman, you know, she's like, I like Belarus, etc. But I want Putin to be our president, you know, because Putin will save us. Putin knows how to do stuff. And her only source of information is Viber chats, you know, where other people, women like her, posting links, you know, from Russian media, Russian YouTube channels, conspiracies about Bill Gates and Soros. And I'm trying to educate her, but it doesn't work. Has the pandemic, the coronavirus crisis, has it changed anything in that respect? Because obviously Lukashenko's standing and Putin's approach to the coronavirus crisis are different, right? So how does that play out in Belarus? I think it's too early to say how COVID changed, you know, especially this pro-Russian, anti-Russian moods. So on one hand, COVID unified people against Lukashenko, independently of their pro-Western or pro-Russian orientation. But we don't know who prevail in this anti-Lukashenko majority, pro-Russian forces or pro-Western forces. Majority believes that Lukashenko is wrong, but you know, this majority consists of so different people, liberals, conservatives, you know, pro-American, pro-EU, pro-Russian, And where this majority will lead, where this protest movement will go, I don't have a clue. This is the thing which concerns me. Independent media and media in general in Belarus, very interesting. You said that um, Lukashenko's crushed uh, independent media, but um, it does exist. I mean, I see a lot of Belarusian media So what's the situation now? Belarusian independent media exists only on the internet. Of course, print, radio, TV, it is the space only for state propaganda or for non-political information. And on the internet, there are a few popular independent portals. Tudvai, Onlineer, there are media funded from the Western funds like Belsat TV broadcasting from Poland, Radio Free Europe, European Radio for Belarus, Poland's funded Radio Razia. So they create, you know, this kind of space of independent information. And this space is strongly supported by bloggers. 
So bloggers are the main multipliers of information, especially during COVID, when the information is so precious. Government doesn't share real numbers of the infected people or real numbers on the death. And each piece of information is like a treasure. And state propaganda's goal is just to be, you know, the megaphones of Lukashenko and authorities. Internet gives a lot on one hand, but internet also creates a lot of confusion because we don't have one social network. We have in Belarus so many social networks and each social network is like a separate world. And even for, let's say, for Radio Free Europe, where I used to work for almost 10 years, you know, we focus more on Facebook, which is already very pro-democratic and pro-Western. And it's very hard to build present on OK, Odnoklasniki, it's Russian version of Facebook, or VK, because the audience there is much less informed on basic stuff than on Facebook or Telegram. We do have those you mentioned, these very popular bloggers, especially on YouTube. They do have a large audience, but uh, television is still apparently stronger. So in what extent is that similar to Belarus? And what's, let's say, different in Belarus, different from the Russian case? State TV channels in Belarus, they're kind of hybrid channels. They use Russian programming at a large scale. They just change the news. They put Belarus on use, but a lot of shows, films, documentaries are purchased, acquired from Russian TV channels. So people are watching basically Russian channels with uh, pieces of Belarusian content. But I think, you know, this news parts, pieces produced by Belarus, they're not very popular. People still watch and uh, connect to Russian news shows through satellite, through OTT, IPTV, internet television. There is a huge army of fans of Salavyov here. So people are exposed to propaganda by Lukashenko, which is very weak, but also to propaganda of Russia, TV propaganda of Russia, which is very present, but targeting primarily older audience, which is nostalgic about Soviet past and supporting Putin. But younger audience under 40, they are social network people. And Telegram made a huge progress for last one or two years. There are several bloggers who have more than 150, 200,000 followers. Each of their messages are read by 100,000 people, including official, including Lukashenko. Lukashenko reacts and responds to posts on Telegram. That's interesting. You mentioned Solovyov, just to explain to our listeners that Vladimir Solovyov is a, well, popular anchor on uh, Russian TV, aggressively pro-Kremlin TV personality in Russia. So he has a following, right, in Belarus? He has a huge army of fans here, but this army is not growing, and young people do not follow so much as older audiences. YouTube is the big thing, and I think if you want to expand the media presence, we need to invest more in the content on YouTube. YouTube is not very supportive of Belarusian language, for example. It's almost impossible to promote Belarusian language content because uh, YouTube doesn't have moderators for Belarusian language, which makes us even more dependent on Russian information space. On Facebook or on Telegram, the majority of popular bloggers are also Russian speakers. So that's another case. You know, on one hand, we want to build our independent information space, 
But on the other hand, it's impossible to do without building Belarusian language information space. Because language also plays a very important barrier, like a protection wall, you know, between information spaces. This is what Ukrainians have done. This is what Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians have done, you know, this, you know, border. So Russian trolls cannot come to forums under articles written in Belarusian language and discuss it on the same level. But still, you know, Belarusian language content is very, very limited, unfortunately. Apart from this cultural movement and uh, pro-language, pro-culture, pro-nation building, are there any groups in Belarus society that would be interesting to mention? Let's say, I don't know, the church. I understand there is a sizable presence of the Catholic Church in Belarus. Is there a group of believers we could speak of? Yes, Western Belarus is primarily Catholic. Cities, large cities, including Minsk, are primarily Protestants. Central Eastern Belarus, mid-sized cities and uh, villages are all Orthodox. And this Orthodoxy are Russian Orthodox, and Belarus Orthodox Church doesn't have independence. It's not like in Ukraine, we, we don't have any autonomy. So that's like a part, like a chapter of Moscow Patriarchate. So this is why church plays a very important role in the political life. They were always very pro-Lukashenko. But, for example, when COVID happened, church and officials of church, they say, please don't go to churches, you know, you have to stay home because there was a direct order from Moscow. And same time, at the same meeting, there is official from Lukashenko who is speaking after the church representative. And he says... Yes, but if you want to go to church, you must go to church because church cleans, you know, your sins, blah, blah, blah. So basically, Orthodox Church in this new situation with COVID, it goes into the conflict with official narrative, which is a very interesting situation. I couldn't imagine it like uh, several years ago. And uh, church is a political instrument in Russia too. Majority of pro-Russian Cossacks organization, you know, these paramilitary groups which defend orthodoxy and uh, pan-Slavism, pan-Russianism, they are attached to church because government doesn't register these Cossacks paramilitary groups and they attach themselves to church like a church affiliate groups. So they don't need registrations. There are many clubs for kids, for pupils. There is this training camps where they invite people from Donbass, you know, these fighters. They teach them how to shoot. They call it Orthodox children camps. All of them are under church. So church is like umbrella for this pro-Russian movement here. And Lukashenko cannot do anything about this because church has this independence within the country. Okay, and what about the Protestants and the Catholics? Yeah, and Protestants, I think, are the most uh, political group. So even many of the current opposition activists and leaders, they belong to different Protestant groups, especially in cities. So they are connected to businessmen. They often build companies and they use this money for financing their church and their social activities. The biggest Protestant group is in south of Belarus. They made a huge business on cucumbers. So the whole village, Alshane, in the very southern Belarus near Ukraine, like 10,000 or more people, you know, they all belong to one company, you know, growing cucumbers, and they sell these cucumbers, you know, to all neighboring countries. So this is a very interesting case. Protestants are coming to the areas, the most secular areas, especially in the eastern part of Belarus, where during Soviet period, there were not any parishes, neither Catholics or Orthodox. So they come there, they propose, you know, to join the church, and many people follow them. Okay, what kind of congregations are those? Very different groups, you know, from 
Calvinists and Lutherans to Baptist Pentecostalniki, also different like marginal groups, even witnesses of Jehovah Witnesses. Okay, Jehovah Witnesses. So there are many. They are not persecuted, perhaps so much as in Russia. They feel pretty comfortable. So Protestants are much more politicized than Catholics because Catholics have kind of agreement with the government. We don't go to politics and you don't touch us. So Catholics have their churches, they want to save these churches. This is why for example in 2010 when the protest after elections happened many people were beaten by police and the Catholic church didn't let people inside you know the protestants you know to save from police like it happened in Poland during 80th during solidarity movement when church held protesters so it's not the case of Belarus but catholic is much more pro western i would say and uh, more liberal than orthodox which is very conservative here There is a rich history of Jewish communities living in modern-day Belarus before the Second World War. There are many sites of Nazi crimes committed during the Second World War, of course, within the borders of today's Belarus. So, well, basically the question is, what is the current political leadership position on historical memory? Is there a history policy or something to speak of in that respect? So regarding Jewish community it was always part of Belarusian culture and political development since the Middle Ages. So 100 years ago we had more than 1 million Jews living in Belarus and Yiddish was one of four official languages. So only for 100 years the situation changed so drastically. So Russian language now is predominant. When 100 years ago, you know, you can hear equally Yiddish, Polish, Ukrainian, Belarusian in the cities. Jewish community after Russian empire incorporated Belarus, Jews were living in the cities and they were a big part of uh, their developments. So similar to Ukraine, to Russia, to Central Eastern Europe, many many synagogues many political events happened with their participation and now this legacy is also part of Belarusian national identity of Belarusian nationalism it's very interesting that Belarusian nationalism is including Jewish tradition culture history as well and i know many belarusian activists and pro belarusian politicians with jewish roots for example one of them yuri zisser who died a few weeks ago He was a creator of Belarusian internet movement or trend by founding the popular portal Tudbuy. His family is Jewish and he never hided this and it never stopped him from being Belarusian some time. We also have Mark Shagal, we have Bakst from Grodno, we have many internationally acclaimed artists who took roots here. And I saw for example when activists promoting Belarusian identity they are wearing clothes with paintings of these artists which also very unusual to me. Yeah yeah that's right but here's the question just to understand basically I think to conclude conversation so what is nationalism then what is today's Belarusian nationalism if as you say it even includes Jewish legacy how you understand what is modern day nationalism because obviously the notion and the history that's connected to that has some obvious negative overtones to it yeah Belarusian nationalism is quite similar to Aryan nationalism in the region, particularly to Baltic nationalisms. It's built on the Middle Age story of, of Grand Duchy of Lithuania, of Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth, but 
In contrast to Ukrainian or to Russian, it's one of the most peaceful. It's never aggressive. It's very pro-European. So I think even some researchers, you know, they're surprised that all Belarusian nationalists, they are in support of European integration. Most of them are okay with liberal Western values, which is very unusual for the region, because, for example, Polish nationalists, they are Eurosceptic. Currently, after Crimea happened in 2014, this nationalism also became defensive from potential Russian aggression. And all these processes we are observing now today in Minsk and regions, people wearing clothing with national ornament, trying to speak Belarusian companies using Belarusian language, even Lukashenko emphasizing you know, our pre-Soviet, pre-Russian history. That's all part of this mobilizing markers of this nationalism in the primordial form. But does it have a civic component to it, a dream of a... Belarusian, you know, liberalization, freedoms that is more, you know, civic in nature rather than ethnic or national? Yes, that's a good question because sure, Belarus nationalism has the civic component and ethnic component. But since the state is quite weak for more than 100 years, we didn't have any independent state. And after we got it, you know, we got the president who refused our national roots. So I think ethnic and civic nationalism are developing simultaneously in Belarus. Currently, I see more civic nationalism than ethnic present in Belarus, because uh, people are looking for what unify them more. And for example, current electoral campaign I was just listening, you know, for candidates' speeches and statements. All of them are speaking Russian. All of them, most of them can be called nationalist in some way. And all of them are saying that Belarus, you know, is unique, is special. We have to defend our state as the main point in their programs. So ethnic, it was like a basement in 80s before Soviet Union collapse with Belarusian culture, traditional holidays, reviving our rituals, where we mix Christianity and paganism. But now, for the last 15 years, on this ethnic nationalism, there is a civic nationalism cover already built. Okay. Franek, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Thank you, Max. Thank you. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.